0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: And so whether it's a vaginal hormone or pelvic floor PT or using hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy in menopause, which is actually the most joyful thing that I do is to take women in their 50s and they literally say, I feel like me. I, I love sex again. I didn't think it wouldn't hurt again. I have a libido because there is evidence based hormone therapy, just like there is for men. It's same as for women. And all of the things that we thought were true about men and prostate cancer and testosterone, we have evolved in our thinking. And so when you understand the evidence, you can say, wow, like it really has shifted. The pendulum has shifted since I was in my training. And so understand that this is what our patients care about and be open-minded to learn new things, right? Please be open-minded to learn new things. And as a urologist, you can do this.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have Sarah Sitka from University of Washington and Rachel Rubin, who is a practicing urologist outside of the DC area. Rachel, Sarah, how are you all doing today?
1: Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so excited to be
2: here. Thank you so much, Aditya.
0: It's my pleasure. And we were chatting before the episode started how I'm going to sit back and just absorb and learn like a sponge. We have really two thought leaders in um, really urologic oncology and specifically uh, kidney and bladder with Sarah and then an absolute champion for women's reproductive health and pelvic health with Rachel. And to kind of see this intersection and put it all together is, is, a, um, is a joy. So, Rachel, maybe we'll just kind of start with you. And I'll be the first to admit, my kind of sexual health intake for most women coming in to see me, which is generally for urologic cancers, is limited to non-existent. Call at it best. what it is. It's yeah. piss
1: poor. Let's call it what it it's is. It's not good.
0: It's not well, good.
1: Not good. You're not alone.
0: I suspect that. But we're going to change that. So, so maybe almost any female coming in, what should be almost like a review of systems that that we're obtaining?
1: So I absolutely love that you just said review of systems. And I think that is really how the paradigm needs to shift. You know, when I went to med school and y'all probably went to med school, sex was in the vice category. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do drugs? Do you have sex? Right, like it was something like bad that you were doing. And so instead, why don't you just have in your template A review of systems that is actually appropriate for cancer patients and that should include a little bit more than do you have sex with men women or both right we're urologists we can talk about sexual health we talk about erections arousal orgasm libido all day long in men what if you just did the same thing in your female patients and so you could have a question hey Any issues uh, with your libido? Are you sexually active? Do you have a partner? What does sex look like for you? Is penetration important to you? Is it something you would like to be important to you in the future? It's okay to ask those questions and also to gauge from your patient sort of how they feel about that. And then you can dig further, right? But if it's important to your patient, it should be important to you. The worst thing is that when you're after surgery, after the fact, after something, and the patient is miserable because she said well, I didn't know that was going to affect my orgasm or I didn't know I wasn't going to be able to do X, Y, and Z because you assumed that she's 70 and she's not interested in those things.
0: I love it. I love it. I mean, that's just like a tsunami to start with. Sarah, maybe I can ask you on, you know, what does this kind of look like specifically in your cancer practice? Maybe we start out with a kidney cancer patient, you know, preoperative, Maybe they had a mass they need a partial nephrectomy and you're, and you're intaking them. How does this kind of practically work for a cancer patient?
2: So I think one thing you know about me is that I get really excited about like knowing patients and getting data about patients. And like that's where a lot of the geriatric work that I do comes in. It's, it's trying to put numbers and start to define things in like mathematical and statistical terms. I like to nerd out on data, which means if I want to know about someone's function, I want I really want to know like. I want to talk about like gait speed. I want to talk about grip strength. I want to talk about body composition. If I want to talk about patients' social surroundings, I want to talk about their partners. and I want to talk about the ways in which they interact with their partners. And I think that the one of the the most important things I, I love what Rachel said, and I love how she just laid it out there, which is that we have to talk about sex. Sex is a very important part of quality of life and our jobs as, urologists and oncologists is to know our people and our patients and know what is important to them in terms of their quality of life. So I think the first thing that, that I just do, and no matter who I'm seeing, whether I'm seeing someone for testicular cancer or kidney cancer or bladder cancer or penile cancer, the first thing I try to let pay patients know is that there is literally not a single topic that is off the table and that comes down to talking about sex it also comes down to talking about like finances cuz financial toxicity is important it comes down to talking about physical function it comes down to talking about like all the things that are going to interact their ability interact with their ability to receive cancer care from me and sex is a really important part of that so i think one thing that i think is really critical is opening the door to conversations about this in a way where your language doesn't impart any judgment and doesn't let patients know that something's not on the table or that there's like some implicit sort of assumptions already being made. So like what I usually do is I always ask patients about who they live with at home, who their partners are, and then I ask about their sexual function and I don't, I don't even, I just assume, I, I make the assumption, I just say, tell me about your sexual function. And that opens the door for them to sit, talk about it being either great or not great important to them or not important to them, but it just opens the door and makes them lets them know that I'm thinking about that. Because it certainly matters for our kidney cancer patients, especially folks who are going to be going on systemic therapy or or people who are going to have abdominal surgery. They want to know when they can get back to being with their partner in in an intimate fashion. So I just think, open the door, yeah?
1: And when you put it in that review of systems and you have it as your template, just go through it and you can really present it as, I ask all my patients about all of these questions. And then you gauge from your patient, how interested are they? And if you show that you care, then they're going to be more comfortable to actually open up and say, wow, this doctor like actually knows and cares about these things. I'm going to come back for my next visit. I trust this person with my cancer journey.
2: Yeah. And where you put it, like not putting it with the devices is actually super important to like just having it be part of you understanding their medical condition, their physical functioning and what is important to them in their lives. And I think you know, another sort of just open-ended question that I ask everybody is when we're talking about, like, successful outcomes, and this becomes really important when you're talking about bladder cancer health, bladder cancer treatment and outcomes, is, is what does a successful outcome look like to you with your cancer care? And you leave it open. And if they really haven't, because I think a lot of times patients don't come to our visits thinking about sex, sexual health. They're coming thinking about a life-threatening diagnosis. And this may or may not be, it may be something they're actually thinking about, but too afraid to talk about. It may be something that they don't know is somehow related to what we're going to be talking about. And so you have to introduce that and make it a safe conversation topic and also just let them know that like there is literally nothing off limits. You can talk to me about anything and I'm happy to engage with you on that. And this is if it's important to you, it's important to me.
1: And there is no better doctor than a urologist to have these conversations. We do this every day, all day with our prostate cancer patients, right? With our male patients where we're talking like a a dude will come in and say, I don't want to have my prostate out. I love my ejaculate. And we as urologists have to keep our straight face and say, bro, I understand. Let's talk about other options. Let's let's have shared decision making here. And all we're asking is to have that same level of confidence to say, I'm a board-certified urologist. I am board-certified to take care of all genders. Let's have real conversations about this.
0: Yeah, I I appreciate that. I think there's some immediate takeaways from me just to kind of triple confirm that it is a part of our standard intake for all new patients. I think that would be fairly low-hanging fruit. Asking about it, uh, practical question. So maybe I'm gonna put myself out there at a minimum. and, And I totally hear you, Sarah. And I tell all my patients this, you know, particularly for prostate cancer, that, Today you're going to be interested in not dying of prostate cancer. In six months you're going to wish that you had excellent erectile function and were ejaculating and things along those lines. This can be a dynamic process, and for sure I think for any patient dealing with a cancer diagnosis that kind of resonates. So I think basic I really liked. Tell me about your sexual function, and that leaves it as existent, non-existent as first kind of major pass fork in the road, and then if it's existent, I think you talked about a couple of things between yourselves receptive intercourse. Is it painful? What's the frequency? Is it important to you? Not
1: and do you want it in the future, right? Do you want because that's the other thing is 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 this something that could be important to you in the future? And we should consider that.
2: Especially for patients who don't have partners at the time of like that's actually a really important key point because it's easier to, to have the conversation sort of you have the decision tree that you go down. Cause I do always ask patients like, do you have a partner? But then I still ask them how their sexual function is irrespective of that because they could very well have opportunities or it just is an important thing that they preserve the potential. And I think it's really important, especially, so, you know, we're here to talk about female sexual function after bladder cancer care. It's super important to understand like the role of menopause and how women are feeling about their sexual function and their pelvic health and try to get a sense for where they're at with, with that, and and I mean, Rachel, you, you got to tell us because this is obviously a, it's, your, it's your area of expertise. Like, how do you kind of guide that conversation in understanding a woman's pelvic health? And I ask a lot about it, and I ask about like estrogen therapy and what they've had, what they've tried, what's working, what's not working. But I, I would love to actually hear <laughs> how you approach it. How,
1: how much time you got? No, I I think to your point, one issue that I have, I have many issues with the healthcare system, but. You know, the oncologist, whether it's medical or surgical, y'all sometimes get long visits, right? You actually do get some time with your new patients, with your cancer patients, you know, sometimes, maybe not always. Not enough. Not enough time. But that's the whole point is how are you going to educate your patient on menopause and the safety of hormone therapy and how sort of this is there's other things going on here and what's the pelvic floor and what is. So we avoid it altogether. And so I don't know how to fix it necessarily because. There is so much, right? So at menopause, and that could be as early as, you know, in the 40s, even late 30s, people start developing genitourinary symptoms of menopause. So they get dryness, irritation, urinary frequency, urinary urgency. And then if they have bladder cancer, some of those symptoms may be from bladder cancer, but a lot of them are from GSM. And so getting them to understand how the foundation, right, the tissue, the urethra, the bladder, the vulva, the vagina are swimming with estrogen and testosterone receptors, right? And when you are in menopause, you lose that. And so everything gets thin, raw, irritated, inflamed. And what if that even increases your risk of bladder cancer because of the inflammation that you have there? I don't think it's been looked at, but this is the kind of thing where it is absolutely the urologist's responsibility to understand that every urinary symptom in a woman over, let's say 40, needs to be understood the hormonal, the hormonal aspects, right? Because we know vaginal hormones decrease the risk of f- future urinary tract infections by more than half, right? And so we have to make menopause a urologic condition because it is. And thank goodness the AUA is now um, investing in guidelines, right, for GSM and saying, we can't just say this is gynecology's problem because actually the parts that kill you are urology's problem, right? The sepsis, the recurrent urinary tract infections that's us. And by us not focusing on this, we're actually really hurting people. And so you and I, Sarah, have always talked about the importance of vaginal hormones in bladder cancer patients in their recovery, in healing the cuff after surgery and things like that, and just how much better they ultimately will do.
0: I love that. You know, even an old older dog like myself, I think, can learn new tricks. And basically, for all my non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients that are receiving intravesical therapy, and mostly BCG, because I do feel like the irritative symptoms can be quite profound, it's reflexive that they're actually starting out on vaginal estrogen with me.
2: Oh, I yeah. love that. That's the best news I've heard You all know, week. That's, this is actually, to that point, this is something we need to study, because I do the same thing. And I, anecdotally, it is remarkable how it can help some people. And I, I we probably need to put some hard data on that, actually.
1: I would love the hard data. And what you need to do is start it two months before even, right? Like this is something or look at the people who are on it versus you're starting it later because there's usually a two to three month lag and getting patients to understand this is lifelong therapy, right? As soon as you stop vaginal hormones, all the GSM symptoms kind of come back. And it would be interesting to see if you had pelvic floor physical therapy in there as well to help with as the muscles are responding to this chemotherapy and these toxins, right? To work on those muscles, to relax them, what, you know, what kind of exercises and things like that can do. But I mean, if you feel comfortable with your daily Cialis, with your Flomax, this vaginal hormone should be just as commonly prescribed. You can do it in a cream, a vaginal insert, vaginal DHEA is an amazing product that has androgen in it. So we really have tools and urologists should be writing them like it is candy, right? Like just give it, give it out.
0: It is on my epic favorites, vaginal estrogen with my medications. So this is really nice to kind of to kind of get us there. And, you know, I feel like one of the blessings and curse of academic medicine is how super specialized we get. And there are things that for a general urologist anywhere in the country, this is like bread and butter, even testosterone replacement therapy, for an example. And I have no problem saying, listen, I'm here to help treat the cancer. We've got a whole team of experts to help sort out your your testosterone replacement therapy and how that interfaces with your fertility concerns and so forth. So I, I think as the kind of sexual medicine field gains traction, as there's guidelines, as there's increased awareness, I personally have very little problem if I just get a hint that there's something to be done because pelvic health, sexual health, libido, hypoorgasmia—I mean, it's complicated, it's intricate, it's related to say, hey, I've got an awesome partner over here that can really help you sort out your, your sexual health, your pelvic health. Is that fair? Just to engage other people early?
1: So it's fair. And, and again, just like with your prostate cancer patients, right, to have your sexual medicine doc who's going to really help before. We want to see people beforehand, during, after to kind of hold their hand and say, hey, we care about your quality of life. Now, the big problem with what you say there is there are not many of us, right? How many oncology fellowships are there and how many uh, urologic oncologists are we training? There is one fellowship in the entire country that even acknowledges women's sexual health, just one, right? And so there was not even a fellow last year. So there are so few of us nor are we able to keep up with the demands of sort of the way medicine is currently running because we can't do sexual medicine in 10 minutes, right? I can't get to know you. What do you care about? What are your goals? What do you want sex to look like? How? What's the dynamics here in 10 minutes? And so until we invest in quality of life medicine and what it means for women, because I think the system is very focused and very more efficient on the male side of things, and that it's, and, and yet we are taught to think, oh, women are whiny. They have feelings. They, I don't want to ask about this because it opens up Pandora's box. And it's more of a limitation of what we are taught, you know, instead of saying, oh, well, we actually have to take a little bit different of an
2: approach here. To that point, though, one resource I rely on a lot are actually either sexual health nurses or sex therapists that we have relationships with because we don't have the same thing. Like I, I wish our multidisciplinary team had a sexual medicine specialist on it because that's really what we need, right? Like as bladder cancer specialists, that would be amazing. Just like you have a pelvic floor physical therapist who can help your patients to learn to use their neobladders and and to really sort of facilitate their recovery after prostate cancer surgery. It'd be great to have a formally trained sexual medicine specialist on our multidisciplinary cancer teams. That's kind of critical. And and like oncofertility and sexual health in oncology is that's that's a really important part of the the cancer center sort of healthcare practice, but we definitely don't have the same thing, like just we just need more people. so I have some like there are people I, I have in the community who I do refer people to, and then, like I, like we were just talking about, I've definitely made myself get super comfortable with prescribing things like vaginal estrogen, which I never used to do, and now I do every day.
1: And that's where I need your data. I need and I'm, I'm so blessed to have y'all in this world to be the loud voices. Right. It was, I believe. So I've been tweeting about this. Ashley Winter's been tweeting about this, you know, nonstop for six years, seven years. And I'll be honest, it wasn't until Dave Keynes and Keith Kowalczyk and a few of these strong male oncologists started retweeting us, started saying, you know what, I'm going to try this. You know what, I'm going to do this. Where it then caught fire and then and it really mattered, right? When the men were stepping up, I hate to say it, and saying, like, we do this and we can do this. We can. and it gave permission. And so that's why I speak to anybody who will listen. So like, here's the prescription, here's how to write it. If you have questions, here's my cell phone number. Call me. I'll walk you through it step by step. You learn how to use the robot. You can learn how to do this. And it's really fun to see how much better it gets when done correctly.
0: You know, it's almost like a bit of a perfect segue. So I had two thoughts. One is Sarah for actually Max Kate's Bridges trial. Our fellow is actually going to be kind of collecting data because we we give vaginal estrogen. I don't think that's a contraindication to the trial on urinary microbiome using a commercially available kit and kind of curious to see if there's any change pre and post fresh induction BCG or dosy. The second thought was that, so one of the things that I've done Speaking of David Keynes, and I literally was about to bring this up, is I have my well-prepped page and I try to educate my patients as much as I can because it's it's challenging, if not impossible, to get all this information. And you better believe that once this episode is edited under bladder cancer, it's going to be sexual health for women with, with bladder cancer. And there's different mechanisms out there, but how wonderful would it be? I mean, BCAN may have one, a women's sexual health considerations infomercial. You go there and you can Hear about what should I ask my doctor about my sexual health if I'm a woman with bladder cancer, for instance. This
1: is why it's so I do so much social media is because I want someone to say, "Hey, I only have five minutes with you, but go look this lady up on YouTube and she's going to answer all your questions, right? Go, go follow her on Instagram, and you'll see that I'm not crazy about this vaginal estrogen thing. Go, you know, and and it's so helpful when we echo each other and back each other up yeah. on this. And
2: just actually having that, like having that place where people can hear this both in sort of social media and I mean. New York Times and everything else. Like, we're talking about female sexual health, which is super, super, super important. And it's super important for patients who are dealing with diagnoses of pelvic cancers, for sure. One thing that's really tricky about it, though, and I think about this with, like, everything we do, is is accessibility and potential risks of, like, equity in being able to deliver this care. Like, we've already talked about not having enough sexual health specialists and physicians for us to call on. The cost is actually something we struggle with a lot. And maybe, Rachel, do you have any, can you give us some tips? Well, so this
1: (laughs) is where the social media has been so incredibly impactful. When I got out of my fellowship, you know, six, seven years ago, a tube of vaginal estrace was $500, right? It's for a lot of patients. No, it's $20 on costplusdrugs.com or using a good RX coupon. So Mark Cuban, we emailed, we exchanged. He saw what we were doing on social media. He answers all of his emails, by the way. You can email him later tonight and he'll write back to you. But we said, Mark Cuban, you've got, you have this new pharmacy. You've got to make this accessible. And the price came down quickly. It is $20 a tube for a tube of estrase, which lasts two and a half months. So you prescribe estradiol 0.01% cream. They put one gram in the vaginal canal daily for two weeks and then twice a week till death do they part. And you got to do a gram because if they're just taking a tiny little pea size and putting it on the urethra, they can do that. It's okay. But that's not enough usually to acidify the tissue, which is what's going to help the microbiome. So you must acidify. And you, I have pH paper in my office and I showed a lady today that her pH went from seven and a half to what it should be, which is four and a half just in two and a half months You know, with vaginal hormones. You can actually show them that the tissue improves, the lactobacilli are going to grow and they're going to feel better, right? And not only feel better, but the tissue is going to look better. Um, And so the accessibility is so much better now than it was. But you have to know how to tell patients either here's what a good Rx coupon looks like. Your insurance should cover it. But if they don't, here's the $20 coupon or I prescribed it to costplusdrugs.com. Sign up, make an account. You can have a dot phrase about it. I do in my office. And then it just delivers to them with a $5 shipping fee, right? And and it's just so, it's no longer an excuse. It was five years ago. We're done with that. We can learn new things. It's super accessible now. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, it sounds like prescribing like Viagra, C-Awesome, we came up, whereas like Canadian pharmacies yeah, and Indian bootlegs and all kinds of fun stuff. All right, so we're getting closer. I think it's a really insightful point that the availability of sexual health counselors is not tremendous. And maybe I'll just ask you, are there any resources that you're like, I really like the way they did this specifically regarding women's sexual health and bladder cancer that you would drive providers or patients to?
2: Well, I think there have been a couple of real, really wonderfully vocal advocates for, for just talking about sexual health. And, and there's a sort of a generation, I would say, of researchers right now who are very function f- focused on developing resources and actually just developing knowledge about women's sexual function outcomes after bladder cancer care. So Svetlana Avilov has been one person who has been running a prospective observational study that has been, that was funded by the Beacon YIA a couple of years ago, and they just wrapped up collecting data. And I know they're going to be putting that out there pretty soon. Mary Beth Westerman has done some really great work here. There's been a ton of the folks who have come out of Anderson who have who've been writing actively about this and trying to put some data on it. So from from a surgeon standpoint, I think in Trinity Bivilacqua's group has validated and sort of studied oncologic outcomes in patients who we start, like now we're kind of moving into this whole realm of not only sexual function, urinary function in women after surgery for bladder cancer, but also starting to think about the differences between traditional radical cystectomy and pelvic organ preserving or pelvic organ sparing radical cystectomy and getting into sort of different surgical techniques that have pretty important functional ramifications. But again, you got to put the data on all of this to assess safety, oncologic safety first and foremost, and then start collecting all the, the quality of life and patient reported outcomes. I do think that Beacon has done a nice job. They have amassed a, a number of interviews and webinars on this. Euro Today has done a couple of really nice interviews with some of the thought leaders in this field, for sure, that are kind of nice uh, sort of summaries of what's out there. But I do think we probably need to create also more resources. I don't know if, are there any that you you both rely on routinely?
0: No, I was totally asking. I mean, one of the things I love about this podcast, I get to ask questions that I can take back to the clinic like tomorrow. So, I mean, it sounds like it'd be like low-hanging fruit, you know, these days, I think, to make a production quality clip takes 30 minutes and like a hundred bucks, something that it would be amazing to have out there. I mean, it doesn't need anything crazy, right? Like a YouTube channel on things to consider. I mean, I can't imagine anybody been better than the two of you all. So perhaps a uh, a possible charge out there that we could all share on our our various platforms. All right. So you kind of touched upon this and I absolutely want to kind of dig into this because, you know, there's certain things that they're like obvious and you're like, why wasn't anybody kind of like thinking about this or doing this? You know, an example, like one of the things that I'm quite passionate about is testicular cancer. It's like surgery for seminoma stage two. It's like, why weren't we doing this like 100 years ago? And and I feel the same about some of the renewed interest. Is that safe to say renewed interest in um, gynecologic organ sparing, reproductive organ sparing, a couple of different names out there that for some reason, it's really been the last call it five, seven years that there's been data coming out and advocacy and awareness about this entity?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that, so big issue here, first of all, is, is prevalence of bladder cancer in women, right? We, it's less than, it's considerably less than it is in men. There's a substantial predominance of, bl- of bladder cancer in males. And because of that, I think a lot of urologists actually are less comfortable operating in the female pelvis than in the male pelvis. We, we do so many more prostates. We do so much more male pelvic surgery really important, I think. And I I actually have, I feel like I've I've spent quite a bit of time these last five years since getting to UW. We have a couple of really amazing female urologists and, and urogynecologists. And I've actually tried to spend a bunch of time with them, like, because no one ever taught me how to do a hysterectomy from a gynecologic perspective. We learned to do it as, as oncologists, which means we take everything out. We go wide, take the ovaries. Like I really try hard. Let's just talk about ovary sparing operations. So that all came from this under, this paradigm that presupposed that you take out the ovaries at the time of uh, radical cystectomy opportunistically because you're there. It's easy. Cuts down on bleeding. And there was this thinking that you take it out and you reduce the risk of ovarian cancer in these patients, right? Well, we know now that that's not true. And actually, ACOG, the gynecologic organization, has basically come down against opportunistic ophorectomy and debunked a lot of that that those preconceptions. Because it seems like, uh, obviously, that the, the data shows that the risk of ovarian cancer seems to be coming from the fallopian tube. So I definitely do opportunistic salpingo for, the salpingectomies. But unless the patient is over the age of 75, at which point the androgen production and estrogen production in the ovary is severely attenuated, or there's a really strong reason to do it, I pretty much almost always spare ovaries in these patients. And that's something that really, if you look at any of the old textbooks, like a radical cystectomy in a woman always involves Taking out the ovaries, I don't think it adds a lot of time, and to spare them, and I, it doesn't increase bleeding risk, and it's just something that if you don't need to take out an organ, like why are we doing it? But the same thing, I think, when it comes now to be thinking about the uterine preserving and and sort of preserving the the suspensory mechanisms within the female pelvis, especially in someone who's going to have a continent diversion. I mean, there's there's increasing not only that, a renewed interest, any interest, and also study about the the safety and the feasibility of doing that. And I think as urologic oncologists, I think people are becoming much more comfortable doing these procedures and gaining expertise from our gynec colleagues, our our urogyne colleagues, and learning from them. And I think that's actually really important. It's something that we probably need to invest more as we're training our, our fellows within urologic oncology. We all need to be really comfortable operating the female pelvis.
0: Yeah. So definitely quite a few thoughts here. I mean, one, I did a month of gynecologic oncology during my fellowship. And it was like mind blowing how different the approach to similar ultimate operations were, especially kind of preservation of the vaginal cuff. I mean, for me, it was largely a lubricated sponge stick in the vagina. Make sure that you're posterior to the cervix and then cut down on it and everything anterior to it goes. And just the kind of anatomic fidelity that they approach it with was night and day. So I, I hear you percent there. So maybe it would be useful to talk about a patient today, let's say 65-year-old woman, decent sexual health going into it, and maybe has like a pretty substantial T3, T4 posterior wall tumor that you're really thinking that a anterior vaginectomy is going to be a good option from a cancer perspective. So what does that counseling look like in terms of your sexual function after this operation's over? Like, listen, your your anterior vagina has to go.
2: And I will be honest with you, the vast majority of the people that I see actually are still in that camp because we tend to see some pretty bulky, high-risk disease. Patients who have gone through neoadjuvant chemotherapy and still have residual disease. And we have to remember that at the end of the day, oncologic outcomes are paramount. We are. I tell patients, whether I'm doing in a male or a female, first order of business is to get all the cancer out because a positive margin in bladder cancer is a lethal disease. We don't have... There's really nothing good that we can do if we leave disease behind, and recurrent pelvic recurrent bladder cancer is awful, right Those, It's a really hard diagnosis and management of it is awful. Radiating the pelvis after you've done a urinary diversion is a terrible thing, and often still doesn't doesn't have long term durable oncologic benefits, so you've got to get it all out. So I talk to patients really honestly about what this looks like. We talk about things like the risk of vaginal. For shortening vaginal stenosis, if you are in that situation, obviously taking everything locally, there is a high risk of prolapse. In fact, that's something that's a huge risk—vaginal cuff prolapse. There's a huge risk for that, especially if you remove all the suspensory ligaments. And it's something that's very rarely talked about. And I think actually, you know, we talked earlier about that—that review of systems. We actually need to talk to make sure we ask our female patients about the degree of pelvic organ prolapse they experience before going into bladder cancer surgery. And that's something that that may or may not be traditionally discussed, and that's a really important sort of baseline status to check in on. We talk about and then you've got to talk about disruption of the parasympathetic nerves and change in sexual sensation, anorgasmia, dyspareunia, all of those risks afterwards, and then, and then obviously, all the body image changes. I do think that one thing you can do a really good job of, even if you do have to take the majority of the anterior vagina, is. One thing that actually one of my FPMRS colleagues taught me was with just with appropriate mobilization of the posterior vagina, you can still often end up with a vaginal cuff that is sufficiently has a sufficient capacity for penetrative intercourse, even if you're you're doing sort of a clamshell closure as opposed to wrapping from side to side and doing sort of a virginal, vaginorophy. I, I think that the capacity. I'd be interested to hear what you think. My my impression is coronal capacity is really important as opposed to absolute length in terms of maintaining sexual function. Because I feel like a lot of times if you do sort of a vaginal closure, you end up stenosing the vaginal canal and then they have such bad stenosis, it's really painful for a lot of patients and sexual function just doesn't get recovered after that operation. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's one thing I've noticed.
0: In in general, yes. I also remain healthily paranoid anytime I'm doing a vaginal clop closure about having a dehiscence and, and having a, a fistula or, you know, basically having their complete enteric continence come out of the vaginal cuff. Thank God it's never happened to me. I've seen it once from a partner over the course of my career. Sounded awful. And I say that because when you actually do a, a vaginal closure, as you mentioned, you have three suture lines coming together right there at the distal most part of the vagina. And, if, you know, just from even bladder neck reconstructions and prostate, if there's going to be a bit of a dehiscence, I have to imagine it's there. So I, when a anterior vaginectomy is required, do go with the clamshell. And I think, you know, if, if you cannot insert in a penis, and if we're talking about receptive intercourse, that's kind of like game over right there. And if it's stenotic and you can, that's challenging. So, so what I'm hearing is really across the gamut, libido, vaginal health, ability to receive receptive intercourse, body image. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. And, yeah. and you don't,
2: well, and a big part of an anterior vaginectomy is you're disrupting all of the nerves, right? Because the nerves kind of wrap around the lateral. If you look at what we know about the neuroanatomy of the female pelvis, and Rachel, you can probably school me on this, so, so forgive me if I'm speaking out of turn. But my understanding from what I've, what I've read and what I've learned is you've got these, the, the nerve bundles really sit like on the lateral aspect of the, of the vagina. And if you come down in that tissue, that's where you disrupt it. And that, that totally changes how sex feels, how, how climax feels. And just all of the sort of neuro innervation of the female pelvis, that's where you mess it up.
1: I mean, this is where we need your data. We need your data and we can't get the data if we don't ask the questions, right? Because what our textbooks say is, oh, pudendal nerve is the only thing that innervates the clitoris. And so you're not going to screw with the pudendal nerve so their orgasm will be fine. What? Right? Like the pelvic nerve to the, cl- the cavernosal nerves to the clitoris should be the same as they are for the penis and we have all that neuroanatomy and it wasn't until Walsh sort of did the dissections and then we said, okay, let's, so that data doesn't actually exist even in the gynecology space. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's looking at it. No one's doing the dissections or even asking patients before these big surgeries, how do you orgasm? Is it from clitoral stimulation? How do you feel arousal? Like we don't, our questions aren't good enough to even tease out the data because, you know, if you take hysterectomy patients, like in the general gynecology space, oh, hysterectomy is good for sexual function. Why? Because when you take massive amounts of data, most people have hysterectomies because they're bleeding, right? Because they have fibroids, because they have pelvic pain. And when you remove it, they feel better. But no one's getting granular to say, well, how do you experience pleasure? Do you have uterine orgasms? Do you have deep enjoyment of the anterior vaginal wall, which you know is prostate tissue actually? And so it's really important that we ask what does sex look like and what do you want it to look like, right? Like, what is the goal? Like, what do you actually want? Because for your point is, is if they have a partner, you know, sometimes you have to say, okay, well, is your partner like here dilators, like what size dilator is your partner? Because you have someone who has, you know, a very large partner, you know, and that's really important to their partnership. Well, we got to have those conversations, right? Because informed consent is everything. That doesn't mean you, you, you can't take the tissue But you really got to sort of have that period where you say, listen, I'm going to do the best I can. But the most important thing here is margins and closure. That actually is the right thing. Then when they wake up, they're not like, Doc, you know, you shortchanged me. Doc, what did you what are you doing? Right.
2: So to your point also, and Aditya just talking about like preoperative planning and being able to counsel. So I actually really like pelvic MRI. To look at burden of disease after chemotherapy, and somebody's got bulky disease to begin with, especially if it's posterior, just to kind of start to understand, just like you would in a prostate, right? Like, you, where's the disease at? Where is there extracapsular extension? Where is there bulky? Is there bulky T4 disease going into the vaginal wall? Like, you know, you've got to take a, a big margin there if that's the case. But the other thing is, just like you can do unilateral nerve sparing in a man, you can do that in a woman too, and you can go. And I, I, I will admit, I, I mostly I'm an open pelvic surgeon. I do my cystectomies open. So I oftentimes am like really feeling where the disease is. I do a really careful bimanual at the beginning of the procedure. And as I'm resecting, I'm, I'm taking cues from what the tissues look like and where the disease is and where I can feel it. And you go wide where you have to. And if you don't have to, then you, you can start to spare some of that lateral tissue. And in those cases, I, do, I really wrap up on the very, very top of the vagina and take as little as I possibly can so that I actually try to leave most of that lateral tissue undisturbed. I also think that's actually kind of nice from a bleeding perspective too. If you take that all up really really high, you end up getting into less bleeding in the pelvis. At least that's my experience.
0: Yeah, I love that and I mean just from a, a slightly different perspective, I do most of my pelvic work robotically and I do a substantial volume of prostatectomies and it gets amazing to me when you're doing a a gynecologic organ sparing cystectomy in a female, it's almost indistinguishable a man from a woman. And you know, there's the perirectal fat, the Homologies and be the anterior longitudinal muscle fibers of the vagina. And I think early on, I suspect that most people doing these operations have a healthy fear of getting into the bladder, which you obviously don't want to do for tumor spill purposes and so forth. But there is the equivalent of the kind of intrafascial plane where it just sweeps, sweeps, and it's so nice and luxurious. If you want to go wider on one side, I think you can get right on the anterior vaginal wall. I've actually gotten kind of within. Layers of the anterior vaginal wall and imbricated that just like if you're doing like ultra wide resection and the rectum's like right there on a man. So I would agree that you know really having an understanding of that anatomy, not like here's a vagina, here's a bladder, here's a vagina, we got to just either take all of it or or some of it, is helpful. And I think educating ourselves on that, giving yourself all the cues for me, it just happens to be that it works a little bit better in my hands robotically. So
1: I have a question. Please. I was- so I haven't looked in a long time. I, I spend a lot of time helping with the AUA core curriculum in sexual medicine. Is there a section on the AUA core curriculum about specifically doing bladder cancer
2: surgery in women? Yeah. So I'm I'm the I've been the senior editor of the core curriculum in oncology for the last couple of years, and now Will Parker took that job over, and I'm the senior consultant. But we actually in our bladder cancer section, we, we do have that, and we added that a couple years ago. But it still needs to be fleshed out even more. It's a really important part, and there is a whole part of the core that is related to, uh, this must be what you're talking about, like there's like the gynecologic surgery considerations. There's, a, there's like, an evergreen document there that I'm pretty sure, I mean, we link a lot of our stuff to, obviously, because it's, it's highly relevant, but it's probably something that needs to be built up even further.
1: Because that's really the problem is we learn in urology of, well, I was never taught this. Well, I was never taught this. I didn't have any female faculty. Well, I didn't spend any time at urogyne. It's all this excuses, right? Well, I didn't do this. And yet a new laser comes out and you're like, I am the head thulep person of the world. And I do all of these things that I never heard of in my residency. But when it comes to sort of, we like to be able to say, oh, I don't see female patients. Oh, I don't take care of those patients. And the answer is, well, who does, right? Who does? And so I'm just so grateful that these conversations are happening because you're really giving permission to people to say, you got this, you can do this.
2: But I love that. And it's so like, Half the world is women. <laughs>
1: this isn't a. This isn't like a small subset of. Oh, you're never going to see this. Like this is half the population, right?
2: It's just it's wild. It's been amazing too, just to just. I think the reconstructed bladder cancer surgery, radical cystectomy, is such an intensely morbid operation that we do. And there's like the onk part of it, the the resection. I do think the reconstruction is so important. And, well, you're talking about, Aditya, like doing a really good cuff closure, like a watertight cuff closure. And then I do like a spiral flop of the omentum and make sure that I've got like nice, healthy, hopefully blood vessel laden tissue surrounding and and flop down on that. That's tacked down there to hopefully facilitate healing is really critical. Because one other thing that I think that women don't often know is the fact that they may have some uh, some peritoneal fluid leakage through their cuff as they heal. If you don't tell them that in advance, that's terribly distressing for women after this operation and thinking like long and hard about making sure you do a really nice closure is actually is actually a pretty critical part of the procedure from one avoiding catastrophic complications like a vaginal cuff dehiscence and evisceration through the vagina but just from a from a healing perspective and avoiding pelvic floor fluid collections and abscesses and all of the other things that can happen down yeah. there really washing the area out and then doing a nice closure that's off tension. It's a critical quality part of the surgery.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, even for, you know, some of the urethral cancers where you've really got to go wide, really subluxing that introital skin in to just give you everything under God's green earth to make sure that you're not going to have a dehiscence. I mean, the way I kind of think about it is if you don't ask, you're not going to know whether sexual health is prioritized. If it is prioritized, then you've got to Of course, take a look at the disease parameters, bulky tumors that are not fit for either chemo naive that are going to susceptible for whatever reason, or for patients that have bulky posterior tumors. These, I think we'd all agree that anterior vaginectomy would be a a part of it. I have never done an anterior vaginectomy and spared the uterus and the cervix. Is that something that uh, you've done or... as described excuse I, yeah. my ignorance it
2: has so i do have partners who have done that in specific indications, or they've taken part of the anterior vagina and spared the uterus i personally not done it myself but i think it's something that you can do but i think you have to obviously if if you're doing it you got to make sure that from an oncologic perspective it makes sense
0: yeah i mean the scenario i can think about as a young person that's still of childbearing yeah. age and you know we see those um And then maybe even if they have some stenosis, as long as they can evacuate their menses and have a C-section and get pregnant. Yeah. But all right. So maybe those are kind of some of the broad strokes disease characteristics. I think we've talked a little bit about this. And I think it's important also just to remind the listenership that gynecologic sparing is not only a part of the conversation in patients receiving neobladder. Yeah. I feel like people go in like two camps, like female cystectomy relatively uncommon. Female cystectomy, nail bladder, relatively really, really uncommon. But those are people that get a lot more attention. But you can do a gynecologic nerve-sparing cystectomy in a woman who's getting a conduit.
2: Absolutely. And to some degree, I mean, it reduces the risk of pelvic organ prolapse, which can affect up to 13 to 15% of patients. If you look at what's out there, and there's not very much, but the poor quality data we have, you can and and there's no reason not to. I think that again, it all comes down to disease characteristics and certainly I'll just again make the point you can spare ovaries in everybody. That should, when we're talking now about uterus and fallopian tubes, but from a pelvic floor suspense, suspensory ligament perspective, maintaining the suspension of the vaginal cuff of the vagina is really important. And so I think that in somebody who's having a conduit, you can still you can still do a vaginal sparing procedure it comes down to disease characteristics.
0: So I don't think we're gonna be able to kind of run through all the kind of surgical considerations of, of this. And I think that's okay. But I thought it might be useful to do two things. I've talked for another hour about this. Are One, there's always gonna be a little bit of a trade-off, I feel like. And in, in, as yourself mentioned, there's a small, albeit possible, real increase in local recurrence rates when you do gynecologic sparing. So maybe... Here's the pros of gynecologic sparing elevator pitch. Here's a potential downside, positive margin rate. What would you tell a patient? Or is that even true well, in your mind?
2: Yeah. So good, good question. So there's a couple of papers that have come out recently that have looked at the oncologic safety of doing pelvic floor of pelvic organ sparing radical cystectomy in women. And they have not demonstrated that in carefully selected patients that there's an increased risk of local recurrence and positive surgical margins. And even Trinity Bevilacqua has a paper in really high risk patients, and they didn't see that either. So again, it comes down to your surgical planning and knowing where the disease is, and carefully selecting the patients. But I think that in patients who don't have bulky posterior disease, you can oftentimes do some degree of pelvic organ sparing operation. So what are the what are the benefits potentially? So nerve sparing, maintaining the pelvic floor innervation, avoiding postoperative prolapse trying to maintain some of the, and and maybe Rachel, you probably can speak more to this, but in maintaining innervation and maintaining hormonal milieu, if you maintain estrogenization and androgenization of a female pelvis, I mean, that's got a lot of benefits, just ovary sparing in, in general. If you maintain estrogen and testosterone from a cognition, mental health, muscle composition, nutrition, bone strength, avoiding sarcopenia, avoiding advanced accelerated muscle mass loss and frailty, Cardiac health, body composition, there's so many different things that you're you're potentially avoiding accelerating loss of function with respect to. And then I think that obviously maintaining it for patients in whom penetrative or re- receptive intercourse is important, maintaining vaginal capacity, maintaining or avoiding the dyspronia and the sort of the the risk of vaginal foreshortening, stenosis, prolapse, and also scarring and sort of related long-term effects, avoiding, if you can spare the vagina, avoiding fistulization and fluid loss. I mean, those are all pretty important. I think that those are kind of the the critical things. I think in terms of risk, I think there is a slight risk when you're doing some of this. It depends though, like you said, once you get more comfortable with the pelvic planes about avoiding blood loss during surgery. Obviously, if you get into the wrong planes, you can lose more blood just like in a a nerve-sparing prostatectomy. You lose a little bit more blood, but as some of the folks that I trained with said, (laughs) trade a little bit of blood for functional preservation there. But obviously we try really hard to minimize blood loss because we know there's a risk with increased blood loss and radical cystectomy and and transfusions and cancer recurrence. So you're trying to sort of bridge all of those. You do have to risk stratify. You have to think about how much time on the table, all the rest of it, and some of these older patients. But I think that when you can spare it's important.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. The neurofunctional aspects of it, the avoidance of quote unquote complications like prolapse that could lead to substantial impact on quality of life and repeat trips to the OR and now a uh, heavily operated on pelvis makes a lot of sense. And I think that was kind of the ho- the message I was hoping to convey. And I know there's been some, back and forth. And I think our imaging has improved, our techniques have improved and the anatomy have improved. And really it's patient selection, just like most things. So Rachel, maybe I'll ask you if you had your like ideal scenario, cystectomy patient coming up, it's typically be at least a couple of weeks, starting at valedal estrogen when this is planned, if neoadjuvant chemotherapy is going to transpire for three or four months, is that a good time?
1: Yes, always a good time. So actually if I had my way and if I could really do the prehab, right, I would actually consider this almost like, again, like we do prostates, is maybe meeting with the pelvic floor physical therapist before surgery who can examine the pelvic floor, teach the patients about their pelvic floor, understand what are the baselines. Our patients do not understand their own body parts because we've been hiding them from our patients with a sheet for all of these years. And so Sarah mentioned the New York Times. The reason that New York Times article was such a bombshell was because I was a full page in the science section that said, look at this innovative thing this doctor is doing. She's giving women a mirror and she's showing them their own genitals and explaining to them how they work. And it was science in 2022 as one of the most shared articles in the entire New York Times of that year. What the hell? Right. Excuse my language. So if I could get everyone to just show patients and get a baseline of before you even have surgery, is there pain? Is there vulvar pain? Is there pelvic floor pain? Is there signs of genitourinary syndrome of menopause? Because once you do the surgery, it's not getting better, right? And so if you have a, ba- if the foundation is weak, it will crumble. And so if you want to optimize your healthy tissue is the tissue you want to sew together. You don't want to sew together wet toilet paper. And so do yourself a favor and make sure the tissue is not wet toilet paper, right? You want to maximally strengthen the tissue with local hormone. And that is going to be vaginal estrogen or even better, vaginal DHEA, which adds the androgen component. And then you want to assess what is the muscle health of these patients. If they've got hip issues, low back issues, if they've got weakness of their pelvic floor, if they leak when they cough, laugh, it right? Those things aren't going to get the pelvic floor issues are just going to compound on themselves when you've had a huge Major surgery. Just listening to the surgeries that you all are describing, I'm sitting there saying, "Oh my God, these poor pelvises!" Because we don't often talk to our patients about rehab. Every day I see patients in my office. They have these huge endometriosis surgeries, these huge hysterectomies, all of these things. I said, "Well, you had your knee replacement, and you had PT three times a week after your knee replacement. That was standard of care. What about after your hysterectomy?" And they say, "What's pelvic floor physical therapy?" And so I think we need to really understand the team in this. And that's going to be the hormone perspective, right? The pelvic floor and the mental health perspective, right? Getting those mental health professionals involved. Having cancer is awful. What it does to the marriage, what it does to the couple. I mean, all these patient support groups where the, the marriage dies, right? The, the, the After breast cancer, the partners leave and they're alone and, and and it really takes its toll. I mean, talk about financial toxicity, right? Uh, we don't think about those things and how you know the partner's there for the beginning, but then when the dust settles, sometimes it's not so good. And so you got to have names ready to go. When I was at residency, I didn't know the name of a single sex therapist in the Washington, D.C. area, you know, when I was a resident for five years. Now my phone is just that's where all my referrals come from. Right. I, I'm, I got them all on speed dial and there are incredible resources. They get me out of jail every time. Just like y'all found out that the pelvic floor PTs help with your ball pain patients and your chronic prostatitis patients. They're there to help you. And when you approach them as team members, your outcomes just get so much better and you don't feel like you're alone in this because you do all those magnificently large surgeries and then the patient comes in, they're like, doc, what about my orgasm? And you're like, but I did magic with your reconstruction and everything's working and your cancer's gone. Why aren't you hugging me? And they say, doc, what about my orgasm? You know, and it hurts. Like you wanna, you wanna be the hero. And so if you don't properly pre-counsel the patient, we see this with our implant patients, right? If we don't properly counsel them on the penile implant, you get an unhappy customer. When they know what they're getting, you're the hero, right? And it's all about words and taking the time to understand what are their goals? What, what do they want out of all of this? And then you try to deliver. And if you don't, they say, oh, well, she warned me about that. She told me that was a possibility. I still think that, you know, she's great, right?
2: Yeah, You can't possibly counsel these patients enough about how hard it is to recover from this operation. I don't care if, how amazing of a surgeon you are, going through a radical cystectomy is how I'll face patients. It's a huge, huge change. And the recovery is not, for most of our patients, four to six weeks. The recovery can be months, especially in our older and medically complex patients. So like, I'm a huge fan of, of preoperative exercise. I'm running our pre-ab trial right now. Like that is, I feel like I'm like these days, like eating and sleeping. Pre- so, 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 are you talking about it? But pelvic floor prehab is just so important. And talking to patients, like setting appropriate expectations about what recovery is going to look like and and letting them know, you know, it's, again, what are our priorities? Our priorities get the cancer out and do an oncologically sound procedure and then maximize functional recovery based on that. And we got to do it safely. We got to do it, but we, and we got to do a high quality surgery. But I mean, if we don't talk to patients before about what the implications of what we're going to do for them, I, I, I love the point that you guys made at the beginning. I mean, yeah, so two weeks after surgery, you get the path report, cancer's gone. But six months later, you're seeing this person and their marriage is falling apart or they are dealing with the repercussions of what we've done to them to get to that point. And the rest that's survivorship right there.
1: And never underestimate the power of saying, I'm so sorry, this isn't what you expected. I deeply care about what happens to you. I deeply care about you as a human being. I I know you, I know about your family. I know about what you care about. Ask about hobbies, ask about... Are they spiritual? What do they care about? What is the spice of life for them? Because that will always save you in the end with that human connection, right? And problems are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. But when you can love on your patients, because patients come to us to be seen, to be heard, and to feel that someone's paying attention to them. And so when you show that you're paying attention and not just to their margins, they understand problems will happen. They can understand that, but they will feel truly seen, Um, And they know when the issues come up that you may not have all the answers, but they'll send you down the street and and you'll give them a name or you'll reach out to a colleague or you'll say, hey, that podcast, you know, go listen to that podcast. Right. And that, again, shows them that you're paying attention.
0: Well, I have absolutely extracted a whole wealth of things that I think I can take to the clinic tomorrow. Certainly research ideas more so than the one that I kind of mentioned. Opportunities for patient education. Clearly, we have some superstars here. But as we approach an hour, maybe, Sarah, we could start with you. Just a couple of parting thoughts for the audience.
2: So one, sex is important. Don't make any assumptions about who is or is not having sex. Ask patients and make, that, make it very clear that understanding their sexual health and what that means to them is, is a priority of yours because that is a critical functional outcome after bladder cancer care. I do think it's important to talk about it early and also often <laughs> I think that sometimes people do like a really good review of systems when patients present the first time and you're doing a new consult. But I think it's actually important to check in about it routinely as patients are going through care, and that's an important part of survivorship, right? Is checking in on sort of like functional recovery and changes in changes in in life situations and changes in sort of what's important, understanding that and having patients just know that you are someone who, who that's a safe topic to talk. I mean, it should be we're urologists, like Virgil's point. This is what we are supposed to talk about, but you've got to make that. A safe space and, and make them understand that it's a priority. And then I think you really need to counsel patients about what bladder cancer care can do to their sexual function, especially it's something that you, you need to be very, very clear about and say our priority is oncological outcomes and functional recovery. But there are some things that I can't promise. I can't promise. It's just like I tell a man, your erections, even if I do a perfect nerve spring operation, are never going to be as good as they are right now. That's just the truth. If I say anything else, I'm not telling you the truth. I'm very clear with women about what the, the implications of doing a bladder cancer operation, or doing a radical cystectomy, or even, frankly, a TURBT could be for, for sexual function. I'm going to let Rachel riff on the vaginal estrogen and how to do that properly because she's the expert here. But I think that you got to talk and you got to, you got to be very open and honest about all of this
0: open the doors. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, and Rachel, from your perspective.
1: You know, I think education is power and our patients make excellent decisions when they have the right education, right? When you counsel them properly, they can make really smart decisions about what to do with their bodies. And when you really, when you can, you know, ask them what their goals are and put it in there after their assessment, I put goals, one, two, three, what are your goals? and try to bring up those quality of life goals. Sure, maybe the cancer is the first goal and the the good surgery is the second goal, but hey, any quality of life goals that we can focus on that I wanna make sure that I keep in mind. So every time you see your assessment, then they come in and say, how are we doing on these goals right now? And they may change throughout the treatment process. Remember, quality of life is life. And so it is not the length in years. It is not the number of years you give them, but it is the quality of those years. And so if you don't know what your patients want out of those years, you can't help them and just work as a team, understand that these patients are often menopausal or have low testosterone states on the male side, right? And they may have other reasons why their sexual function is not optimized. And so it may not be the bladder cancer. And so whether it's a vaginal hormone or pelvic floor PT or using hormone therapy, hormone replacement therapy in menopause, which is actually the most joyful thing that I do is to take women in their 50s and they literally say, I feel like me. I, I love sex again. I didn't think it wouldn't hurt again. I have a libido. Because there is evidence-based hormone therapy, just like there is for men. It's same as for women. And all of our, the things that we thought were true about men and prostate cancer and testosterone, we have evolved in our thinking. And so when you understand the evidence, you can say, wow, like it really has shifted. The pendulum has shifted since I was in my training. And so understand that this is what our patients care about. And be open-minded to learn new things, right? Please be open-minded to learn new things. And as a urologist, you can do this. You absolutely can do this. It is so fun to add this into, and it doesn't mean everyone's gonna come flocking to your clinic, but just to have the conversation about it and just be a safe space for patients to talk to you.
0: I think that's fantastic. I might usually have something to add on top, but I feel like that was comprehensive. So again, appreciate your time and your expertise and your passion about this uh, extremely important topic. Rachel, Sarah, really true trailblazers in this field. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us and for giving us time and a space to talk about it. We really appreciate it. Great to be
1: here.
0: with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun.
2: Social media and PR by G. Ding. Administrative support
0: provided by Jamila Lee Kinebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.